Jimmy Bernasconi on 2XXFM, people-powered radio on the 98.3 frequency, and you are listening to Sacred Cinema. And this week we are talking about eliminating the enemy. Back to another episode of Sacred Cinema, the show on which we, or in which we, uh, during which we discuss cinema, that great art form that you know and love, and sort of extract some insights from it about our personal lives, about society at large. What can we gather from the silver screen that might help us in our day to day existence? Last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this idea of leadership, uh, particularly like power and influence. I mean, we talk about these themes pretty often on the show. Uh, take a look at individuals in cinematic history who have uh, had people under their thumb, have been able to exploit or manipulate people. And we want to explore, you know, when does that happen to us? Do we ever let that happen to us? And, and what happens when we suspect that someone might be doing that to us? Uh, we have reasonable suspicions that they might be exploiting us or manipulating us, something like that. Well, this week I want to sort of move out of the cultural realm in a way, maybe more into the political or the romantic or the personal realm and talk about this just a little bit more in the context of enemies. Like, like when we know, when we, when we sort of have that suspicion that someone may be dominating us, um, they might be a little bit domineering and we, we are suspicious of that and we want to do something about that or we just find that someone... Just they, they rub us the wrong way. We want to get rid of them. They want we want them out of their life. We want them out of our life, um, and uh, you know we want to eliminate them. Essentially, now you can interpret that a number of ways. In, in the context of today's conversation, I suppose that's that's going to be constantly in reference to murder. But I guess murder in film or in stories or myths is always you know it's it's more metaphorical than literal. But you know that's up to you if you go over, if you go back and watch any of these films. You know, um, I, I think this is quite relevant to talk about this sort of thing as well because we've just had a major federal election in this country. I mean, it happened uh, literally just a couple of hours ago uh, as I record this. And um, I guess a lot of people are very excited about the result and everything like that. I mean, for me, what's interesting about a political campaign is the sort of rhetoric and the tone and the emotion, I suppose, uh, that we see a lot of, uh, that we see a lot of uh, in the not just in the run up to the actual decision, uh, the election itself, but also afterwards. Been talking to a lot of people today about how they feel about it. Um, you know, their person winning or their person losing, that sort of thing. Uh, and it does seem to be that there's a very high degree of emotion that's involved. Now, there's a high degree of emotion uh, that that you know, play, emotion plays a role in everything. Like I should we sh- I shouldn't be saying that, that emotion shouldn't be playing a role in politics. It plays a role in everything from stubbing your toe to making scrambled eggs. Um, but I do find it very interesting how in the context of a discussion about political ideology, uh, in a discussion about economics, uh, in discussions about political science, which are all pretty, uh, I guess, pretty like stale, you know, like idea, like they're not particularly like emotional things necessarily. Um, you know, you wouldn't sit in a university lecture about uh, macroeconomics and, and they start crying or cheering, right? It's just the way that the world is. We, when we try and look, when we look at the data and we try and extract theory um, or we try and extract abstract concepts from the data, we we try not to get emotionally involved. You know, when we engage in the scientific process, we try and not get, uh, we try not to engage our emotions too much. But it, obviously in politics, we do. And it seems that we do sort of like to conflate, or, and maybe this is because we live in a, in a, in a fairly sort of sec and atheist, atheistic uh, period, that we do like to conflate political ideology with um, morality, 
that he, that if you believe a certain political view, if you have a certain political viewpoint, that necessarily means you're good, you're one of the good ones, or you're one of the bad ones. And and it's very easy for us to do that. You know, you could take any given political issue and you could play out any number of implications or consequences from a certain take on that issue and say, well, well, that means that you're okay with you know children starving, or or that means you're okay with uh, you know this or that. Like like you can you can sort of draw these um, what you think are logical conclusions from someone's political viewpoint and then put them in a box. I saw it a lot last night on um, on Instagram going through people's stories saying, you know, being very pretty, pre- not, not only say they're using violent language, but using pretty like, um, a lot of the language used was, was pretty on the nose and um, pretty visceral. And, and, and I mean, that's fine. I believe in freedom of speech and people should be able to do that. But I do think it was an interesting idea. How should we view our, not just our political enemies, but how should we view our enemies? Should how, To what extent do we engage our emotions when we view our enemies? When is that actually uh, a logical or, or, or a thing to do? But 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 outside of that, uh, when is that actually a good thing for us? Is it a good thing for us to do that? Are we, uh, are we deluding ourselves when we do that? Is it a healthy thing to do? Does it make us more whole and more stable? Uh, or is, is, it a, is, it a, is it a healthy thing to do to, 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 to sort of see an enemy and, and want them to be gone, to, to, to vaporize, to evaporate, to, to, to uh, go out into the ether and, and, and us never have to deal with them together? And is that something that we can actually genuinely achieve? So um, we, we're going to sort of look more at the, I suppose, I guess there is a cultural uh, question here about what we do with our, with, with our with, and not, not, not our leaders, but exploitative leaders, with, with enemies, people who we fear, people who we see uh, are potentially dangerous uh, you know, in, in relation to us. And if we look back in history and how that's happened throughout, uh, throughout the culture, throughout Western culture, throughout the world, uh, we can see this is a pretty common thing, you know, especially uh, if we, we've done a lot of episodes about this sort of thing when we very often talk about things like cancel culture and different ways of viewing individual people and and good and evil and that sort of thing so there's going to be a lot of common themes coming up in this week's conversation i know in the past we've talked about the idea of, of witch hunts we did that uh, we talked about that when we did i think the man hunting episode and um we talk about the idea that there there is this history of of you know and we and we see that sort of re you know we see it appropriated in different forms and things like that obviously uh, if you look at a play like the crucible we, we talked about that when we talked about the manhunter episode uh, but but the idea of a witch hunt and a, and a trial and, and and burning someone at the stake, making sure that they they, they as, you know as I just mentioned before that they, that they go up in in flames, go up in smoke, that they sort of enter the ether as as microscopic particles, so we never have to experience their presence anymore. So you know, as human beings in our rituals, we have sort of liked to see visual representations of of of, 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 of a vaporizing enemy. Uh, similarly, if we if we look at depictions of uh, crucifixion and Jesus Christ, who was who claimed to be speaking truth and people were threatened by that and 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 they, they you know it wasn't just that they put him up on a cross and pegged rocks at him and and had him bleed out to death and die but they had to put him into a tomb and put a big boulder over it. like like we really had to shut him out um, we had to really shut him out of the conversation. We can't see him. We can't hear. Even though he's dead, we don't want to have to experience his physical presence any longer. And I suppose um, you you know the whole idea of um, you know, of, of, of eliminating the enemy, we can't look past uh, genocide and ethnic cleansing and the Holocaust and things like that. And that's definitely going to be a concept that, that turns up in one of the films today. Um, so uh, we've probably mentioned the films, what they are. The first one is going to be Dial M for Murder, the 1954 film directed by Alfred Hitchcock. This, is this maybe our first Hitchcock film 
on the show. And I can't believe that. It's it's May 2022. This show started over a year ago. And uh, I think this is our first Hitchcock film. Um, we're then going to move on to Zulu. Uh, directed by Cy Enfield from 1964. Really uh, interested in chatting about that one. That was actually a recommendation from a fan. Uh, so please, uh, your dreams can come true, fans. If there is a sh- sh- film that you'd like us to talk about on the show, please get in touch with me either on Facebook or Instagram. Or if you know me uh, physically, um, yeah, just send a letter. That's fine as well. Uh, and then we're going to finish off with Suspirio um, by Dario Ardento uh, from 1970. Seven. So let's get started with Dial M for Murder, nineteen fifty-four. So in the context of talking about eliminating the enemy, and I think this is a pretty classic example of of, of an interpersonal elimination of one's enemy. So um, it essentially centers on a married couple, and um, the husband realizes that uh, uh, his wife is having an affair. Uh, the, the the husband obviously is, um, if you if you know the film, he's uh, played by Ray Milland, and then the um, the wife is Grace Kelly, and she's secretly having an affair with um, Robert Cummings' character, Mark. And uh, and Ray Millen's character finds out about this. The husband, he finds out about that, and he's like, I'm going to kill her. And he organizes this very specific uh, grand plan. You know, the... the, 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 the um, uh, the Mark's, Mark's character, uh, Robert Cummings's character, Mark, he's actually a crime writer, and there's a lot of uh, dialogue in the film about the perfect, uh, the perfect crime or the perfect murder, and there's a lot of meta stuff going on. I mean, classic Hitchcock, and he's got his face there in the photo and everything like that, you know, um, playing with the with the, the fourth wall and inserting himself in the, in that, and, and and there's a little bit of that in, in this film uh, that you have, a, you know, a murder story a mystery writer um, as an actual character talking about the mechanics of a murder and, and a murder plan and how that all works, and he ends up being uh, a little bit of an agent of the solution in this film. But I don't think we actually need to get too deep into actually what happens. It's just the general premise is that rather than it being a whodunit, we know from the very beginning uh, that, that, that Tony is trying to kill his wife, Margot, and he tells us in the first act how he's going to do it. So the suspense in this film doesn't really come from, oh, who did the murder? It's more coming from the fact that oh, wow, this murder isn't actually working out as I thought. And that's a real credit to, and this can sound a bit horrible, but that's a real credit to Tony's plan, right? Like, it, it seems so robust and um, intellectually um, robust, or it, it, it seems like a very intelligent plan that us as the audience, I mean, this is a very famous film. It did very well. Everyone's seen this movie. It's a, very, it's a classic film. Uh, it's a real um, it's a real credit to Tony's plan that it actually has us on the edge of our seats, right? If anyone has ever seen uh, a murder mystery, I mean, they always find out who did it, right? You kind of know that going in. That's not really where the suspense comes from. It's more not that it happened, uh, but who did it. Whereas in this case, Hitchcock is kind of, I mean, he didn't originally write the story. It is originally a play. But Hitchcock is 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 is, is creating suspense, is generally, generating suspense by really making the audience feel like this is definitely going to work. Now, this is not the only film that does this sort of thing. Uh, not all sort of uh, thriller, noir mystery, murder mysteries, films from the 40s and 50s uh, are whodunits. You know, Double Indemnity is another example of a film uh, where you kind of know what's happening and you, and you sort of see it play out and that sort of thing. Uh, to, a, to a degree, I should say. Um, and th- of course, there are also, there's always kind of twists and turns and that sort of thing in the these films, but you know, that's 
that's another example I think that does something similar. But the point I'm trying to make is that there is such a thing as a plan to eliminate one's enemy that seems at the face of it that it's absolutely going to work. And it would be a subversion of expectations if it didn't work. And if we think about that in our normal lives, I think that we all do that, right? We have those moments where we have a plan or we can see something that we can see a, um, a, a path forward to see the elimination of the bad guy, right? You may have gone into the, bo- the booth yesterday thinking that, for example. You might think, well, you know, that there is this bad guy we need to get rid of. And once we put this other guy in or this other lady in, the bad guy will go away and there'll be no more bad guys. And look, I do that as well every election, right? You, you go in there thinking that if you vote a certain way, that's going to get rid of this this certain bad person, this this bad entity that exists in our political system. And once, you know, if if I if, if everyone does what I do, then that'll happen. And it's not just in elections as well. It happens in social life, right? Oh, if I can just get cut this person out of my life, or I can just if I can just break up with this person, or if I just stop speaking to my family, if I just stop hanging around with this person, my life will be better. But of course, in this film, as it plays out, and, and, and this is obviously, this happens literally, but it is a, a very good metaphor for, for, for what you know, happens when we do eliminate the enemy in life. Uh, even though even get, it gets to the final moments, we really think that Grace Kelly is going to die. And I'm not going to tell you exactly what happens because you might not have seen the film. Um, even that point where we really think that it is the end for her, and we're absolutely convinced that nothing um, can be done to, to, to stop that from happening. Of course, the film, you know, it's 19... 19- 54, that doesn't happen, and uh, it all ends happily after, ever after for Grace Kelly. So as to say that there is this sort of inevitability or eternal presence or eternal persistence or this, this sort of perpetual existence of one's enemy or of the opposition. Now, that's very easy to swallow when you watch a film like this because we're, we're barracking for Grace Kelly, right? Um, Ray Millen's character, he's, he's the protagonist, uh, and he's the one that's carrying out the murder, or he's the one that's devised the plan, but he's actually the bad guy. So it's very easy to watch this film, and, and we sort of we celebrate when we find out that Grace Kelly uh, has a chance to, to live on and, and prosper and that sort of thing. But nevertheless, there is this concept of the inevitable enemy. This is something we've talked about a lot on the show. We've actually did two episodes on the scary stalkers idea. You know, if you look at someone like in a slasher film, someone like Michael Myers from Halloween, this idea that you can never really eliminate that person. They're forever dormant. They're forever haunting us in the background. So let's move on to a film where it's maybe a little harder to swallow. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult. We, we, where where, the, where the, the enemy in this film uh, is uh, is sort of the one that uh, we maybe sympathize more with, or at least in the, in the current context. Uh, and, and also, this next film we're going to talk about is sort of talking about this sort of stuff on a broader level. So we've talked about the personal. We're going to move out into, I guess, the political or or the, you know, the, 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 and a, a broader application of, of these ideas. But before we do that, just a reminder, you are listening to 2XFM on the 98.3 frequency. I'm your host, Jimmy Berners-Gone. You are listening to Sacred Cinema. Please stay tuned for more quality radio content here on 2XX or if you're listening online, feel free to sponsor the show while you're on our website or uh, subscribe to the station. All of that would be very much appreciated. Thank you, dear listeners. But moving on now to what I'll say, it's a bit of a controversial film. Like this film obviously is uh, a little bit dated in a lot of respects. Uh, I mean, I, I have no trouble watching a film like that. That might be because I'm a white boy, but uh, I, I mean, I don't really doesn't bother me watching a film from another historical context so much because like, we kind of know that times change and things change. And uh, but I suppose just I guess a little bit of a warning going to this one that this might not uh, you know be up to the same ethical standards that we hold films to today. Um, but I mean, to be honest with you, I think it is like a fairly like 
uh, like a morally neutral film. I mean, I think it's pats a lot of the British soldiers on the back who I guess are caught up in a in a in a campaign that was pretty, you know racist right like like the, you know the british the colonial um uh you know their their, their campaign into to, into sub-saharan africa or i guess anywhere i suppose um is, is pretty deeply uh racist and it is one of those things that we do have to uh keep in mind when we watch a film like this but i think I, i'm not really watching this film as a historical account i suppose more of just as a narrative as a story and what sort of the, the larger themes are that are drawing out i would never i mean i wouldn't ever recommend uh watching a film uh, at least a one and a half or two hour film as some kind of uh, reliable historic resource. I'm not really sure that's why we go to the movies. Even documentaries, I don't think are that reliable, um, to be honest. Uh, I think we sort of more go to the movies to feel something emotional and, and, and sort of pretend that the characters uh, are made up and written, which essentially they are, even if they are based on real people. So, of course, we are talking about Zulu from 1964 uh, by Cy Enfield. And as I mentioned, this is a fan-recommended film, and I'd really appreciate if people uh, got in contact more about some uh, films that they'd like us to discuss on the show we love when that happens um, but if you don't know much about the film it's essentially recounting a pretty uh, pretty hectic battle uh, that took place between the British soldiers in uh, it would have been the 19th century um, in South Africa against the the, the Zulu people and essentially the, the, the British soldiers were defending this like missionary hospital place that they had in the Zulus obviously you know it was originally their land and it's been taken over by the British so they're coming to I guess take it back I, I kind of like how this film doesn't really get too much into the details of it like I suppose one problem of it is that it, it does mean that the Zulu people are quite voiceless in the film I mean it's made for a British or an English speaking audience so I, I suppose that's one of the reasons but we actually do get a pretty deep exploration of um, uh, you know the, the whole first act or the first scene of this film is like a very long um, this is this is long I, I mean, I didn't look into how historically accurate it is, but it, it seems like it was a really deliberate way to sort of introduce us to uh, Zulu culture and, and Zulu tradition and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and there is this opening sort of conversation between the priest and his daughter, you know, one representing moral relativism and one representing universalism. So I think the film is, you know, for a film that coming out in 1964, I think it was trying to be quite conscious of, of these concepts of not being, um, you know, not having racist uh, ideology. Obviously, they were still present in that time. They still are. But, uh, you know, trying they were trying to be very deliberate about not having sort of too much of a, um, you know, you know, having you know, understanding that it was a complicated time and understanding that you can't have sort of a simple view about this sort of thing. But anyway, moving on to the, the, the general, the, the, the themes of the, the, the film, um, the Zulu people outnumber the British by like literal thousands, right? And I suppose that the reason why they made the film is, you know, for, for at least for the purposes of British audiences, is to sort of commend the bravery of the British soldiers for being able to hold them out, despite there only being like 130 or something like versus like, I think it's like, like 3,000. I suppose it's like the British version of 300, you know, the Spartans thing. Um, and, 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 and there's, a, there's a moment in this film, though, that, that separates it from just a classic sort of war movie of, of, of bravery and things like that. There's this, a bit of a motif of these British soldiers continually looking up on this ridge. And it, it kind of works with the camera quality being kind of bad because uh, the, the, the Zulu people sort of just like emerge out of out of nothing it's kind of foggy and and because they're a long way away and you just see this, this um, the, the first time you see it, it's an amazing shot it's very well shot where you just see this this very gradual emergence of 
thousands of figures standing on this ridge and uh the soldiers being like oh my goodness we we, we are dead like we are so gone. even though we have guns we are so gone and so for the for like an hour and a half you just see this onslaught of zulu uh fighters coming down warriors coming down and fighting the british soldiers um, but a big part of this film is the British uh, tactics, the, the military tactics that they employ, and they have these very specific ways of, obviously because they didn't have machine guns or anything back then, of these very specific regimented ways of, you know, crouching down, you know, reloading, firing, and they're, they're actually able to, even though they lose a lot of guys, they're actually able to hold off the Zulu for quite some time, they come back, and the Zulu obviously have a very specific uh, military tactic as well, they're going through all these different areas, the whole thing is a, a I mean, you'd love it if you were a, you know, if you were a military military tactician watching this film because it's all about tactics, military tactics. So again, we're getting to this territory of a very intellectually robust or a very intelligent way of eliminating the enemy from both sides, right? But I guess the main focus is the British. And they're actually able to stay alive for the long, the longest time, right? And you, you sort of have this feeling, it's like, wow, you know, it really does go to show if you're smart enough, no matter how little, you know, resources you might have, no matter how... Um, outnumbered you may be in life, if you're smart enough, if you've got enough intelligence, you can fight off the enemy. You can eliminate the enemy. Um, but the very famous final moment of this film, not to give it away if you haven't seen it, but is that the Zulu come back in pretty much the same numbers again. And it's just sort of this this moment for Michael Caine and the rest of these British soldiers who's like, we are well and truly beaten. Like, we are about to just cark it anyway. And they still have, like, literally thousands of dudes left. So you're sort of left with this feeling of being like, actually, you know what? The, the intellectualism, all that sort of military strategy, it was great for a short period, but it's, it's, it really, it's, it, um, what's that word? Um, it really is futile. Um, but something very interesting happens. And what happens is that the Zulu people actually salute the British and they say, you know, well done. You know, we could absolutely crush you if you want, um, but we're going to walk away from this uh, because we are so um, impressed by how brave you were. And the British soldiers can't believe it. They're like, they had us beat, but they've decided not to kill us. And they've shown some mercy. So this is sort of lifting a new layer on this conversation, right? It, it, there's one thing to say that, you know, intellectualism and, and, and tactics and strategy can't actually eliminate the enemy. There's no actual way that you can think of a way to eliminate the enemy. But you can sort of build a bridge. And that's in the background of this film the whole time, right? From the beginning, um, we realized that one of the main reasons why these specific group of British soldiers are there is actually to build a physical bridge. Obviously, it's obviously a metaphor for trying to build a bridge between the cultures, the British culture and the Zulu culture. And there's these, all these comments of, you know, the wood is too dry in Africa to actually build a bridge. But ironically, the, 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 the bridge is built... Uh, through this act of sort of mutual respect via bravery, like even though they mow each other down, by doing so, by sort of putting their bodies on the line, and this calls back to that episode we did a couple of weeks ago on cops, by kind of putting their bodies on the line and showing that we are willing to die for this cause, that we are genuinely committed to what we're doing, there becomes this sort of mutual respect, right? If you can somehow signal or herald self-sacrifice, which is that what I'm fighting for is bigger than my own, uh, my, my own mortality, my own existence, um, you sort of get this mutual respect from the enemy. It almost sort of like builds this bridge of respect um, with the enemy, and 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 then they'll probably and then then they might spare you. 
from the, the destruction that they could very easily impose on you. Now, applying that to British colonialism in Africa might be a little on the nose, and I'm not sure it's an apt metaphor anymore, but it is a really interesting idea that if we put ourselves on the line, if we engage in some element of self-sacrifice, that can be a way that sort of uh, calms the waters, that softens things. So our enemies aren't really as acute or, 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 or volatile or hostile as they originally may have been. Um, but that's not all movies, obviously, right? There's plenty of movies where the enemy actually is eliminated. We're going to move on to our final film now to discuss that idea. And this is the 1977 film by Dario Argento uh, called Suspiria. It's been recently remade. We're talking about the 1977 version. And in essence, it's about this young girl that goes off to Freiburg in Germany, in the, in the Black Forest there, I'm pretty sure, uh, to study dance. She's going to be a dancer. And uh, it's pretty gory, this film. Uh, I mean, it's kind of dated in some of the, uh, you know, the, the way that they depict uh, you know, fighting and, and death and that sort of thing. It's kind of, kind of camp and kind of fun. Uh, but it's also pretty, like, like pretty full on as well. And so a lot of the girls in this school keep getting murdered and people keep getting, you know, bloodily murdered. And it's, it's a real kind of, uh, it's a pretty trippy movie. The architecture of the, I mean, it, it, there's, a, there's a quite a gothic element to this film in the sense that, like, a lot of the, um, the you know, the set is very whimsical. It's, it's not gothic in like a dark and stormy way. It's sort of more like a, it's kind of got that fairy tale color to it. But a lot of the architecture is, is, is kind of whimsical. Uh, the doors are sort of shaped as if they're coffins, uh, things like that. But, but I think thematically it's very gothic, obviously set in uh, Freiburg in, in the Black Forest. You know, that's the territory of the Brothers Grimm and that sort of thing. Uh, thematically, a lot of this is, you know, looking behind the curtain, peeking behind the veil, looking behind the door, knowing what lurks behind in the dark. And we've definitely talked about that before on the show. We did an episode where we talked about that film, Come and See, about the idea of, you know, the reason why we don't go looking into the darkness is because it's very scary. We don't like seeing what's on the other side. And evidently in this film, um, you know, it, it's, it's witches. And it turns out that this dance school is run by a bunch of witches, and uh, you know these. The, 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 and I suppose there's a there's a metaphor there, really, which is uh, this is the same every time there's ever witches or if there's some some supernatural thing going on with women in in, a, in the black forest, or if it's Robert Eggers the witch or something like that, or if it's Halloween or something like that. It's always this tension between you know the dainty little fancy beautiful uh, schoolgirl and uh, you know the the orderly, the 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 oppressive orderly uh, nature of the these, these matriarchal forces that that run the academy and and obviously they're being German you know they're pretty you know, they're quite strict and rigid I suppose not to take it to that place anyway so on one level this is a pretty like two-dimensional film about witches and it's like a horror movie about witches and it's I guess the moral of the story is go out there and and kill witches because witches are bad they're oppressive um you know, they're horrible, they're a threat to your youth, they're a threat to your beauty, you should kill them. But I think there's a more interesting way that we can look at this film. We do this quite often on the show, that when we, when we analyse the films as if all the characters are different iterations or different variations of this sort of uh, core personality, which is our protagonist. And really, it's an internal tension uh, between her and that ugly, orderly, rigid version of herself, which is the directress, who, who is, is sort of hailed as this, sort of this ultra bad guy villain in the film and, and we only really meet her at the very end and so for the protagonist in this film her ultimate the ultimate tension that she has to confront is sort of destroying her inner directress right she destroys that enemy so if you apply that to the conversations that we've talked about today right we, we do understand that there isn't really a path to fully 
eliminate the enemy. But we can sort of build a bridge with our enemies in a way. We can we can soften the tension, right? We can we can somehow show the people that maybe threaten us, the people that could very easily dominate us, the people could very easily overpower us, that we're really we're willing to put our body on the line. We're ready, we're willing to go into that dark place. We're we're willing to do what needs to be done, no matter how much bravery or courage or self-sacrifice that requires. If we can show that we're willing to do that, then maybe they won't be so hostile. They won't be so uh, volatile. Maybe they won't be so threatening. But when we start seeing that as an inner tension, when we start seeing that as is actually a war that we wage with an inner version of ourselves, maybe we can start to soften the blows that we enforce upon ourselves. Maybe we can start being a little bit braver towards ourselves and confronting those inner parts of ourselves that maybe are a little bit rigid and, and domineering and, and bullish and, and, and coming to terms with that and somehow being more diplomatic, negotiating that within our inner self and saying, you know, that thing within me that threatens me, that threatens my ego, that's something that I can, that's something that I can calm down, right? If I just show that I'm willing to do the work and, and put in the sacrifice, that is something that I'm, I'm actually able to overcome. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on Sacred Cinema with me, your host Jimmy Bernasconi on 2XFM on the 98.3 frequency. Thanks so much for having a listen. Please get in contact with me. You can find me on Instagram or you can find the show uh, just by searching Sacred Cinema with Jimmy Bernasconi on Facebook. Uh, but until next time, please do get in touch, but keep listening here on 2XFM for more quality radio content, either live or on our on demand. Oh, 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 oh,